Father God, as we come now to the heart of the cross, please would you stir our hearts. Father, for many of us, these are familiar truths. And it is only by your spirit that they can be living truths that are fresh again, that provoke a a new love for you, a new hatred of sin, a new desire to live your way. And so we ask that your spirit might be powerfully amongst us. Amen. Amen. Imagine you're the judge. Uh, The case is um, Crown Court, serious case. It's death by dangerous driving. 18-year-old, 19-year-old girl was driving and... um, a uh, text came in, and without really thinking, she, you know, she knew, you know, you're not meant to look at your phone while driving. It was a text from a friend um, with some massive bit of gossip, and uh, she and she swerved and ploughed into uh, a family cycling on the other side of the road. And the uh, father, two children killed, mother, life-changing injuries. Nine months later, it comes up for trial. It's clear that she's guilty. No question of that. The jury has to return a guilty verdict. She did it. But you as the judge have the choice at this point. You can show mercy to her. You can show lenience to this 19-year-old girl and not send her for 10 years in prison. Or you can show justice to the wife and the mother who has seen her family wiped out and is in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. You can show the value of the family and the value of justice by giving a long, full sentence. Or you can show mercy and compassionate kindness to this girl who's made a dreadful, dreadful mistake and give her six months. But what you can't do is both uphold justice and give full weight to justice and punish properly the wicked, negligent killing of three lives and at the same time also be merciful and compassionate and show love and grace to someone who has made a dreadful, dreadful mistake. You can do one or the other, but you can't do both. Which would you do? That is the dilemma of the cross. That God can show justice by punishing us, or he can show love and mercy. But how can God be true to both aspects of his character? How can he be both just and loving towards us? Now, as we uh, dive into Romans 3, which Chris just read, uh, Paul's just finished the first part of his argument. And if you think in terms of a law case, it has been rather devastating. From 118 to 320, he has systematically demonstrated the unforgivable guilt of every human to ever draw breath since Adam and Eve. In 118, he began by explaining that the white-hot fury of God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress God's truth. He's dealt with the objections, all the objections we might raise, showing that even God's people, the Jews who had the law, even they stand guilty before God. For although they had the law showing them how to live, they couldn't keep it. So 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Our old friend um, Archbishop Anselm showed the other problem we face. Even if we could obey God from now on, how do we make up for the stuff we've done before? 
You know, classically, we think, um, I'm going to live a really good life now. I'm going to change and that'll be all right. But as he says, if in justice I owe God myself and all my powers, even when I do not sin, I have nothing left to render to him for my sin. He said it in Latin, which sounds rather better, but it's rather harder to understand. His point is, is pretty simple. Look, if I owe a great debt to God, but I also owe him everything I'll ever earn in the future, then how do I repay if uh, everything I have is also a gift from him? I have nothing left to repay him. I already owe God all my love. Uh, I already owe God all my holy obedience. So how on earth can I repay him when I'm in debt? And the end result is that come judgment day, when the film of your life is played out before God the judge, and I really hope it's only God the judge who watches that film. Although even that just reveals that I'm more worried about what other people think than he thinks. But imagine when the, the film, the credits finally roll, as if credits will be rolling then. And everything that you've said and done, everything you've thought in secret... Do you really think any of us are going to stand up at the end of the screening and say, well, that was pretty impressive. I think you'll agree, I more than deserve my place in your kingdom, God. Better make me a room pretty close to yours, I'd say. Open the gates. I imagine we'll be hanging our heads in shame and agree with Paul in 132 that we are deserving of eternal death. That's where we are in Romans 3.20. The case for the prosecution has just rested. All of us are under God's wrath. All of us deserve death. But now, but now, it is one of the great turning points of the entire Bible. And indeed, uh, the now is a, is a now of time. It's not just that um, the argument in Romans hinges on this point. It's all of human history hinges on this point. It's right that we talk about B.C. and A.D., This moment at the cross is the pivot point for all human history. But now something else has been revealed, not the wrath of God as in 118, but this time the righteousness of God. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness of God. It's a key Bible word, righteousness. It's, the, it's actually the same word as a justification, justified, just. They're all the same word group. And uh, so it appears throughout this passage when you see in 24, justified, it's made righteous. Verse 26, uh, to demonstrate his righteousness and be the one who justifies and just. All the same word, basically. And it's a legal term. It means rightness, uprightness justice it is more than innocence it's not just not done anything wrong it also means done a whole lot right it's not just not worthy of punishment it's also really worthy of reward and praise and god is like that he is the very definition of righteous but romans uh, at this point paul is saying something more than just god's character his righteousness has been revealed you know we can now see that god is righteous he is saying that but something else do you see from verse 22 that righteousness is not just a description of god but it is a quality you and i need it's almost like a substance it's a thing we need verse 22 this righteousness is given through faith in jesus christ to all who believe In other words, righteous is what God is like, but it's also something you and I need if we're to get through judgment day. It's like driving test. 
if you think about it. Um, so you can fail the driving test if you get a major fault or too many minors, says the person who failed his first driving test for speeding. Uh, and hitting a curb at 35 miles an hour. Um, it wasn't a very good day. Uh, I feel rather more sorry for the instructor than anyway. Anyway, um, look, if I just sat in the, as a very poor driver, if I just sat in the test centre car park, I'd have got no crosses and no minor faults. But he wouldn't have given me a licence either, because you need to do more than just avoid driving badly. You've also got to demonstrate uh, competence. You've got to drive safely and well. And righteousness uh, describes more than just a, a life sitting in the car park where we don't do anything, you know, no sin committed. It describes a life full of a loving, joyful, self-sacrificial service of God and others. Righteousness is a positive thing, not just an absence of negatives. And as we've seen, the law is no help in this. The law is good. It shows in detail what God is like. But the law can't make you want to live like that any more than the signs on the motorway make you want to drive at 70 miles an hour. They tell you where you're going wrong, but they don't make you want to do what's right. So we need something other than law if we're to be righteous. And this is what has now been revealed, verse 21 of Romans 3, at this point in the cosmos. So if the first talk we were, uh, it was effectively a thematic talk, jumping around the Bible, we're landing in Romans 3. So get it open if it's not already, um, and we're going to work our way slowly through it. Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. But this is not plan B. Everything changes, but it's not plan B. As if God had a go in the Old Testament, but rats, they're just useless, they can't keep the law. I'll find another way to get them right. Do you see verse 21 says, uh, this way, this new way of becoming righteous is something to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets, in other words, that's a summary for the whole Old Testament is a series of signs, of shadows, of promises, all of which point to the fact that God was going to, to become a human being and suffer the punishment himself for sin so that you and I would be made righteous and acceptable to him. Uh, theologian Roger Nicole says that salvation is figuratively foreshadowed in the Old Testament and finally accomplished at the cross. In other words, the Old Testament is full of signs and shadows and promises pointing towards what God would do at the cross. So right at the start, in the Garden of Eden, when you think about it, God promises in Genesis 3 that just after humanity has ruined everything, he promises that there will be a son, a seed of Eve, who will crush the serpent's head with his heel, but will be struck on his heel as he does so. And at the cross, Jesus triumphs over Satan. He crushes his head, but he is mortally struck by Satan as he does so. Uh, God chooses later in Genesis one family, the family of Abraham, and promises that the serpent crusher would come through this family line, would be a seed of Abraham. And at the end of Genesis, one child in this family is born called Joseph, and he is rejected by his family and he is cast down into a dungeon but then he is raised by God out of the dungeon and he brings new life and salvation not just for his family but for all the peoples of the surrounding nations and at the cross Jesus is rejected by his own people the Jews and he is cast down into death but God raises him to new life and he brings life not just for the Jews but for all peoples and on it goes symbol and sign and shadow after shadow the Passover lamb who is slaughtered in the place of the Israelites so that they can go free from slavery in Egypt 
the sacrificial animals at the, at the temple that are killed in the place of sinners so we can have access to God. David's victory over the terrible giant Goliath while the people stand useless, fearful and incapable of fighting themselves. Queen Esther's willingness to lose her royal position and her life even to plead the cause for her condemned people. Isaiah's prophecy of a servant of God who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter and pierced for the transgressions of his people. All of the Old Testament is signs and shadows and promises, pictures to help us understand what would one day take place when God became a man and died on a cross for our sins. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, that one day became now, became today. And Paul gives three words, three pictures that are full of uh, Old Testament imagery to help us understand what is achieved for you and for me. So these are the three big pictures. You've got the, the points in your, in your booklets there. Three pictures for us. The first is justification. We are forgiven. It's the law court picture. We're familiar with this scene from the good wife and broad church and suits and whatever else. The law court, the serious atmosphere, the stern looking judge, all the court clerks shuffling their papers, the the sharp, rather useless looking lawyers. Um, But where are we in the scene? Now, we're not in the public gallery. We are standing in the dock. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We're standing in the dock, and the case has been devastating from 118 to 320. Eyewitness testimony, internet search history, bank statements, transcripts of conversations, all pointing to a life lived with me at the centre. A life lived with God ignored or treated like my personal genie, whose job is basically to make me comfortable and to bail me out of trouble. I'm not a terrorist or a child molester, but beneath all the politeness and the good morals, if you're anything like me, there is the sense that ultimately what I want matters most. The deepest love of my life is for me. And that makes me normal. And all the the pride when I get things right that is way beyond what it should be. And the bitterness when I'm wronged. All the self-absorption. All the unwillingness to admit when I'm wrong. All the arrogant assumptions that my way is better than God's way. All the anger that I don't have everything I want right now. All of it comes back to that. That I'm at the middle of the universe... And if God really knew what he was doing, he would make things more like the way I want them. Because I'm in love with myself. And all of that is exposed in 118 to 320. And a hush descends on the courtroom. Everyone stands and the judge reads out the verdict. We find the defendant justified and right with God. It's extraordinary. It doesn't say in 3.24, innocent, are declared innocent, but justified, declared that their life is full of righteous, loving, glorious, beautiful deeds. Which is 
the opposite of the truth. Which is why it says we're justified by grace rather than law. It's a free gift. Jesus has given us something that's not ours. This is the great swap. He willingly took my guilty status upon himself and clothed himself in my foul sins. And instead, he gave to me, to you, his perfect righteous deeds to clothe us in. And that is one of the most liberating truths in the cosmos. The verdict on your life is already in. All that striving, all the desperate need to be justified in the eyes of whoever matters most to me, whether it's parents or peers or myself. And yet here is the one verdict that really matters, that of Almighty God. And he gives it as a free gift. He says, I'll give you for free. You're justified. I give you for free the status of a life well lived. A life that counts. A life others would admire. A life that matters. A life I approve of. And it's yours as a gift. You have done enough. That's what God says to you in Jesus Christ. You've done enough. Eternal reward is yours. You are justified. That God would say that to creatures at all is just immensely liberating and assuring. That he would say it to sinners who've rejected and dishonoured him. It beggars belief. But if you trust in Christ, you are justified. Well, how does this justification come about? It comes about through redemption, verse 24. Do you see? All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Suddenly we're whisked from the law courts to a far more unfamiliar scene. A dusty, hot, chaotic, crowds of people shouting, uh, haggling, waving money. And in the middle is, uh, is about the most miserable group of people you could ever hope to see. Barely dressed in rags. Heads bowed, chains round their necks, chains round their ankles. Shuffling along, slapped, prodded, pushed. They're slaves, and the cruel slave master has the power of life and of death and has brought them to market to sell them to be worked to death. And again, where are you and I? We're not in the crowd. We are in the slaves. We are in the middle. We are in chains. But at this point, a new buyer appears and steps forward. And instead of a a whip in his hands, he pulls out a key. And he unlocks the chains, and instead of demanding service, he treats your wounds, and he sets you free. He pays the price, and then sets you free. That's what redemption is. He redeems us. He pays the price, and sets us free. So why does the Bible use that as language to explain what happens as the cross? We get that sin makes us guilty. I can see that, why justification works. But why redemption? Because sin, as well as making us guilty, it it enslaves us. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We don't feel like we're slaves in the same way we feel we're guilty because the nature of sin is doing what I want. Uh, you know, we, we're the oasis generation. Um, the great anthem of the 1990s, I'm free to do whatever I want, whatever I choose. And we sing along with our lives every day. I'm free to do whatever I want, whatever I choose. But actually, Bob Dylan was much more insightful than Noel Gallagher will ever be. 
And he said, whether you're a king or whether you're a pauper, or whatever you are, you've got to serve somebody. It's, uh, it's great. It's not, it's not the best song he's ever written, but the words are haunting. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you are going to have to serve somebody. He recognized even when we do what we want to do, we're all serving somebody. We're all slaves. The thing is, you only feel the chains when you pull against them. If you've ever been caught in a rip current at the sea or swum in a river, you only notice how strong the current is when you try to resist it. While you're floating along, you don't feel anything. It's freeing. When you try to swim against it, you suddenly realize you're in trouble. Sin enslaves us. We are ruled by our fallen desires. But at the cross, Jesus broke the chains. And we'll think about that a whole lot more tomorrow. But uh, let's move on to the final image, the most unfamiliar scene at all. And this time we are in the crowd at the atonement. Verse 25. Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We're at the tent in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. And it's one of the three great annual feasts in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. And we're in the crowd looking in. It's not a great day if you're an animal lover, a vegetarian, or even vaguely squeamish about blood, because there's going to be a lot of blood and a lot of death. But that's not the reason the crowd are a little bit detached from the spectacle. We can't approach The most holy place, the heart of the temple where God symbolically dwells enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant is off limits to you and me. It has a great hazmat sign, danger, do not approach, risk of death. The day of atonement is the day when sacrifices were performed to enable God to dwell in his temple with his people. It was a response to a couple of idiots, a couple of priests, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who said, you know what, Um, we'll come up with our own alternative worship service, because what God cares about most is the sincerity of our hearts, is basically what they say. And so they say, we'll offer the sacrifices we want, and they wander into the into the tent of God in Leviticus 10 and fire comes out from the presence of God and scorches them to death. Oh. Apparently you can't just treat God however you like. And so God gives them then the Day of Atonement to show them how they can safely approach him to to deal with their sin. He says, look, you can't just approach me because you're sinful. So here is a day to deal with that. And at the heart of the ceremony are two goats. The first goat is killed for the sins of the people. Its neck is cut and the blood is sprinkled to purify the temple where the sinful people have been so God can dwell in the temple. And the blood is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, the top of it, which is called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. Now, the focus of redemption and justification are us. They're things God does to us. We are justified. We are redeemed. But atonement is something that God does to himself. His justice must be satisfied. His wrath must be atoned for. His punishment must be exacted. And so the first goat absorbs God's wrath. God's punishment for his people's guilt. The technical term is propitiation propitiation absorbing the punishment for sin that's what the first goat does the second goat is where we get the term the scapegoat Uh, the sins of the people are confessed over it um, laying hands on its head and then it was driven out into the wilderness the technical term is expiation Uh, the, the taking away of sins sins being taken away 
so that God can dwell with his people. And here at the heart of the Old Testament sacrificial system is a picture of what God would do one day to deal with sin. But hit pause for a moment. Come back to from the, the temple to the law court. Now, Scottish law is different from English law. In English law, you're either innocent or guilty in a criminal case. In Scottish law, there's a third option. Innocent, guilty, or not proven, which means we know you did it. It's just there's a technicality or the evidence didn't quite meet the standard, but you don't exactly walk out with your head held high. There is the, the certain whiff of guilt about you as you leave court. And most of us have a nagging suspicion that that's what's going to happen on Judgment Day. Yep, I think, you know, the kind of Jesus trusting in him thing will work. Uh, but it'll be pretty clear that basically we got off on a technicality. And that when we get to heaven, I shouldn't be there. And the best thing is I stay out of everyone's way so that nobody spots, what are you doing here? And throws me out. And that's when atonement is so, so important for us to understand. Because the whole point of atonement was God desired to live with his people. Atonement was to make it possible for God to dwell with us. When we look at Jesus dying on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement, God is saying, this is what I'm willing to do to have a relationship with you. This is what I'm willing to do to have you close to me, to be one with you. And so the result of atonement is not a status change like justification, guilty to righteous or redemption, enslaved to free. It's a relationship. The barrier that's been in place between God and us since Adam and Eve is taken away and you and I are welcome. It's that beautiful scene after Jesus rose from the dead, the first Easter, as he speaks to a completely confused Mary Magdalene, who's come to anoint a dead body, not worship a risen saviour. And he says, I'm ascending to my father and now your father, my God and now your God. All the beautiful, rich things we've seen about God's relationship with his son in John's gospel are now ours to share. If you like, there's a, there are two different types of key when you think about Jesus' um, salvation. There's the, the key where, where God um, unlocks the jail cell, where we are condemned and awaiting the death that should be ours and sets us free. But that's not the only key that we find at the cross. There's another key, which is the key to God's house, which he gives to us. And he says, uh, it's not that I want you need to make an appointment to come visit me. Here's a key. You're welcome any time. There's a difference between uh, a friend who visits and someone who lives with you. When Braden came to live with us in September, we eventually gave him a key. Because <laughs> we're saying, you know what, you're welcome. This is your home now. One or two rules, but this is, uh, <laughs> but this is your home now. Uh, we, we want you to come in any time. Here's a key. God doesn't just give you a key to let you out of prison. He gives you a key to his house, to his family. He says, you belong here. You don't have to make an appointment you don't have to come with somebody else. I want you here with me, is what God says. It's an extraordinary thing that God does at the cross. But now, everything changes. Everything changes. All the ways that you and I define ourselves through life. I think they really boil down to two things, tragedies and triumphs, the ways we define ourselves. This is what the cross means. Sometimes we're defined by tragedies. Uh, you're the person who, um, uh, who went through that horrible experience. 
you're the person who suffers with this thing. We're sometimes defined by stuff that's been done to us or tragedies we've suffered. Do you know what I mean? And it sort of, it becomes who we are. Other times we're defined by our triumphs. Uh, I'm a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, uh, I have this family. You know, the, the things that we've achieved in life, the accent we speak with, the education we've been given, it sort of defines us. Sometimes we're defined by our tragedies and sometimes we're defined by our triumphs. And if you're defined by your tragedies, it does become crushing. You eventually live down to it. You know, I'll never be more than this person. Always defined by the stuff that's been done to me, the stuff I've suffered. Always defined by my failure, is what I often feel. Or if I'm defined by my tragedies, I live in anxiety, and my triumphs, I live in anxiety. That I won't live up to it, that I'll forfeit it, I'll lose it, I'll fail at it. And so I'm either... I'm either crushed by inadequacy or desperately anxious. But at the cross we get something else. We get something far, far better. I no longer have to be defined by my tragedies or my triumphs. Instead, God gives a new status to you and to me. He says, but now, whatever you've achieved, whatever has been done to you, but now you are justified. You are redeemed. And you are family. And those are things that cannot be taken from us. Those are things we can't lose or stuff up. (laughs) They're things that we can stand on forever. And I want you to get that clear in your heads and in your hearts. You are not defined by your tragedies or your triumphs. But now, I am justified. The verdict on my life is in and God says, I love you and I approve. I'm redeemed. I'm set free from anything in my past. And I'm atoned. I'm part of God's family. That's who I am, a son or daughter of the Most High. But now, everything has changed for you. However, at this point, much as I'd like to finish right there, and much as you'd probably like me to finish right now, um, a little voice might puncture the happy atmosphere. How on earth can that be right? You said at the start about the law case. Uh, the, you've got the, the judge who can be merciful or just. Well, he's been merciful. We've got all these wonderful blessings, but what about justice? How can this be right? How can God take a bunch of guilty people and say righteous? A bunch of foul people and say family? Actually, amazingly, verses 25 to 26 tell us, no event in All of history demonstrates God's justice better than the cross. God is more just at the cross than he was at the flood. He is more just at the cross than anywhere else. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, justice, because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justified those who have faith in Jesus. See, there is a problem in the Old Testament. We know God says he punishes sin. Exodus 34, 7, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Proverbs 11.21, be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished before God. But that's not what we see. Loads of wicked people get away with it. Right now, Kim Jong-un is 
performing through his wicked doctors medical experiments with no anesthetic on Christians in North Korea. And he is eating. He's flying in celebrity chefs. Who knows which celebrity chef it is tonight for his dinner. Tomorrow he'll be playing basketball with a retired NBA basketball star. He is not suffering what he deserves. And his head will probably go down to the grave in peace. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God's sentence has been passed on human wickedness, but justice hasn't been enacted. See, it's, uh, it's like um, Spandau Prison, actually, uh, where at the end of the Second World War, the Nazis, um, the chief, uh, the sort of senior Nazi leadership were held before their executions. Uh, on trial. If anybody deserved the death penalty, it was that group. Now, there's a sense in which you could say when they were in prison, they were suffering. Um, you know, they weren't free to go. They were in prison. But justice wasn't fully seen until they were executed. See, the, there's a sense in which Romans says the wrath of God is being revealed against human wickedness and, and we are shut out from his goodness in heaven. But justice hasn't been fully executed. Well, at the cross, justice is executed in full. But that's only half the story. Okay, so God judges at the cross, but how is it just that Jesus takes the punishment for you and for me? Jesus didn't commit the sins I committed. If a judge in a human trial uh, lets a guilty person go free and an innocent person take their place, the last thing you would say that had happened is justice. A theologian, John Calvin, recognized this in the 16th century, and he recognized the answer. He said, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from him. And all that he suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and dwell within us. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself by faith. By faith, the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ so that we are in him. And our deeds are his deeds, and his righteousness is ours. So at the cross, it's not that God is just a really dead good lawyer, and he finds a loophole that gets you off. No, by faith, we are so united with Christ that he is rightfully, justly punished for what you and I have done. And by faith, we are so united with Christ that we are rightfully, justly rewarded for what he has achieved. What that means is when you fear and feel guilty, you do not have to pray, God have mercy on me, although that's a good thing to pray. You can pray, God be just. God be just. You can rely on the justice of God because Jesus has paid for your sins. So it's extraordinary verses we so often read with the confession at church, 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins just because Jesus has paid. Just because my sins are his, just because his righteousness is mine. And now you see how marvelous, how truly, unbelievably marvelous God's justice is. and salvation at the cross is human judges can be compassionate or just god somehow manages to be both at the same time 
at the cross his compassionate forgiving love and his holy dreadful justice don't get balanced out or traded off they both shine out more brightly than at any other moment in all of history nowhere is God's justice seen so fully as at the cross as Jesus is punished and nowhere is God's forgiving love seen so fully as at the cross as sinners are reconciled to him don't get over familiar with the cross or blase about what was achieved for you come back to the cross regularly look at the cross in the different ways the bible shows us all that jesus did pray over it the more you get to know what god has done for you at the cross the more you get to know your god and as you do so you will see the beauty of his character the theologian oswald uh, reflecting on the cross writes the mystery is no longer about how it is possible for sinful humans to have a healthy and whole relationship with god the only mystery is how god could love us like that if you're not trusting in jesus then please look to the cross if you want to know what god thinks of sin and what god will do to sinners on judgment day look at the cross You cannot afford to meet the living God while bearing your own sin. If you are trusting in Jesus, then please look to the cross regularly. Because at the cross you will see the truth about you and the truth about God. At the cross you will refresh your love for God and the humility that enables you to love other people. At the cross you will see the marvellous, infinitely mysterious beauty of God's love for you at the cross you will ensure your love does not grow cold at the cross you will see God is a God of beautiful justice of justice that saves of justice that forgives and of justice that loves our father God we thank you that you are the God of the cross our father we thank you uh, that as well as uh, showing us your love as we see our sin at the cross you show us your justice as we see the marvellous way that you save us, a way that means sin is paid in full, your justice is upheld, and yet we are somehow justified, redeemed, and made your children. Father, we praise you and we love you, and we ask that you would help us always to stand at the foot of the cross, that we might be filled with love, and that we might be filled with thanksgiving. Amen.